Trend following is a heuristic, so it's just a rule. The way that you think about defining a trend following strategy is just making sure you define the parameters of that rule. In the simplest sense, the signal in terms of to go long and short, you could say, okay, I'll look over a month. If the average is increasing over, let's say, three months, ooh, things look good. You go long. You do that until you finally see that you start to lose in that position. So sure. really, you could go through many permutations of all of these simple heuristics, but at the basis, it's really just defining rules to diligently get in and get out of positions. Now, for those of you who have just tuned in and have not heard the first part of this conversation, I really would encourage you to go back to episode 95, the previous episode, and listen to that one first, as it sets the stage for what we're doing today, which is a brand new format compared to all my previous podcast episodes. But for those of you who have already listened to episode 95, all I can say, sit back and enjoy part two of my conversation with three of the world's leading CTA experts, Katie Kaminsky of Campbell and Company, Alex Graceman of ISAM, and my colleague at Don Capital Management, Roberto Osorio. But before we jump into the conversation, I want to say a big thank you to Soul Waxman at Barclay Hedge for sponsoring this episode. And since this is a new format for me, do let me know what you think and if you would like for me to do more of these kinds of episodes. Leave me a comment, send me an email, give the podcast a rating and review in iTunes. It's the only way for me to know if I'm adding value to your day. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Now, let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. is that the simpler and the more sort of robust and simple the solution is, mm -hmm. the better. So Alex and I had done some work on this as well, is that over long time horizons, the typical market-based trend-following approach tends to outperform. Mm -hmm. So one over N. So you allocate equal risk to mm -hmm. every market. That particular strategy over long time horizons does very well True. because it basically has no view which market's going to do better than another. Um, you need to, if you're going to have a view, you need to have proof mm, sure. as to the contrary. And proof is hard to ascertain in a world where you're, studying, you're stuck at 50-50 or 51-49. Yeah, it's the role of uncertainty that really makes mean variance not to do the job that some people expect, that theoretical... Uh, financial economists would expect it to, to do because, like Katie said, they, uh, we don't know what the uh, expected returns are, or if you, at the most you make a bet that uh, 
let's say, an informed bet that things are going to go up or down based on some statistical evidence of how they behave with respect to uh, their past history. But it's very hard to be any more precise than that. And when you put that in a mean variance optimization engine, small changes in expected returns give to very different, yield very different answers. Uh, going back to the problem of simplicity and complexity, I think, in my opinion, you should not introduce complexity grat gratuitously. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Einstein said that we should be as simple as, as possible, but not simpler than granted by the problem. I'm paraphrasing now. Probably worse than he put it. Uh, but uh, so the idea is that the components should be simple. The components of a model should be simple. But once you have new signals, mm -hmm. you should introduce those signals in a way that's not you know, it's not a Ruth Goldberg and you know machine. If you know what I'm talking about, those famous old comics where you have those very complicated uh, uh, complexions to just draw a ball from point A to point B. Uh, we don't want to do that. We don't. If you if you want to grab some effect, you have to try first the simplest way possible. Then you can introduce some a bit of overlay of. Uh, let's say, granted, or complexity that is granted, that's uh, uh, ensured by the evidence that you have, by the data evidence that you have, that this added complexity uh, yields bad results. And this has always to, uh, to be done very carefully because sure. you don't want complexity for the sake of it. Sure. No, absolutely. Now, in the old days, when you looked at performance reports, of typical trend followers, you know, you could almost guess how firms like Campbell, Dunn, ISM would perform if you knew the performance of just one of them. But that's not the case anymore. How has trend following evolved in the, say, past decade or so? And are there new trend following styles that has emerged that's created this more dispersed performance landscape? I mean, uh, Niels, I would just say that Trend following has evolved just like any other industry out there. I mean, back in the, the 70s when, when Campbell was formed, um, our founder was, you know, basically that was when a computer was the size of a, you know, a gymnasium or something like that. And, and really in those days it was about drawing pictures on paper and, you know, yeah. sort of using your ruler and <laughs> trying to figure rule. out the trend and the slide rule. And, and, and eventually people figured out how to use computers. Then eventually they used Excel. Then they started doing coding MATLAB and doing all sorts of more complex things. And I just think it's a natural progression of our industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, what happens is we evolve with time to survive. Very consistent with uh, the adaptive markets hypothesis. Mm -hmm. As markets adapt, we compete. Those who don't continue to compete and innovate don't survive. Sure. So we're constantly working on trying to find better ways to do what we do and also trying to find new ways to, to improve our process. And that's what makes us all better, and that's how we've evolved. Mm -hmm. Sure. I'm, I'm not sure you, that's, it's correct that the dispersion between, between trend following is actually 
increased. If we actually look historically at different trend-following strategies, it's been pretty similar over the years. What's the reason the dispersion may seem to increase is because a lot of CTAs now do other things besides trend. Sure. And somebody who you think maybe historically has been a trend follower, and now they do something else, and then that now increases the dispersion between them and somebody else. If you look at pure trend followers, or you ask all of us to somehow extract just the trend following track records, you normalize it with the same volatility, you're going to get, I mean, we've done this study, you're going to get dispersion right in line with your expected dispersion. When I say expected dispersion is if you just take two return series with an assumed correlation. Sure. If it's 100% with the same expected return, you're going to get zero dispersion, sure. meaning difference between returns. At 0.7 correlation, which is roughly the average okay. pairwise correlation within the industry, I believe, depends on the volatility assumptions, you should get something like about 20, 25 percentage points of so-called interquartile range between uh, the managers. And if you look at uh, New Edge or Barclays or any historical data of track records, it's going to be right on, spot on, right. in terms of the dispersion you're going to get. Now, most people make the mistake that thinking that 0 0.7, 0 0.8 correlation is so high that the returns are going to be very similar. Mm. But actually, unless your correlation is like really high, I'm talking 0.95 high, 0.7 is high but low. It's seemingly high, but it's already low enough that the performance is actually going to be all over the place. And if you look in the 80s, I mean... Mint and Campbell exist in the 80s. Just between Mint and Campbell, there was a fair bit of the, it's easy, maybe it's easy to say now that it was the same in the 80s, but uh, there was years that sure. between Mint and Campbell and AHL and John Henry and whoever was around back then, so there was easily 20, 30 percentage point differences between returns. That behooves sure. the investors in going their work and you know, doing their work to, and understand that. Mm -hmm. We've actually done a little bit of research on this as well. You did a white we, paper on this. I have yeah. a white paper yeah. on it. It's called Count, um, Return Dispersion Counterintuitive Correlation. Exactly. Um, and one of the things we discussed in this paper is that when trends, especially really strong trends occur, they, they're very idiosyncratic. So mm -hmm. it really depends on the exact allocation. You have different time horizons, different, different markets. And you know you can't always predict exactly how that's going to work. So sometimes it's a difference. Take the tulip crisis as an example. You wait two more days, you lose it all. But if you'd been the lucky one that had the look back window that got you to sell the day before, you look like a superstar compared to the guy who was going to wait one more day. Doesn't your paper show that dispersion is higher when returns are positive? Yeah, when people, when everybody is following similar trends, they actually get very counterintuitively. They may get very different returns because it depends on the point of entry, the point of exit, uh, how they diversify among different markets, uh, and their details of their algorithm. What is really their signal indicator? Mm. It's yeah. not a it's not a long only strategy, and sure. I think that's the real challenge. If it was a long only strategy, mm -hmm. correlation would be much better mapped to returns. But since you know it's a function of how I'm going to decide to get in or out, you can have huge differences if you wait one more day versus the day before. So that's why we diversify, to try and smooth that out. And speaking so. on diversification, I mean, you can talk about diversification on markets, models, data sources. I mean, talk maybe a little bit about that sort of where you think 
I mean, I think most people would say that they understand diversification of markets. They, they can make sense that if you trade oil and you trade lean hogs and, and maybe cocoa and, and, and a few financial markets, that that's diversifying you know, the returns. But what about the other kinds of diversification we can get? How important are they actually in, well, in the overall? itself as a diversifier? Yeah. <laughs> to, uh, see, I, I, I know what you're asking, but I'm going to be a little like, this maybe gets into a little... Almost more than people need to, people get into kind of like analysis paralysis mode. Sure. I mean, it happened to me all day today and all day yesterday, asking everything about everything. Sure. At the end of the day, most of the audience that will probably is going to listen to this need to step back and say, okay, do I need this asset class? And how do I get into this asset class? Right. You know, 20, 30 years ago, the access points weren't as easy to find. I mean, I guess, you know, Mint had a fund, Campbell had a fund, John Henry had a, yes, these private funds. You know, now I think all three of us will do, well, some of us have mutual funds, some of us have, you know, managed accounts, and there's almost no excuse not to have this, uh, this in a portfolio. Sure. So uh, I need to mention a white paper, so we have a white paper contest here. So I have two, mm-hmm. and Katie, you haven't, see, haven't seen these yet. Uh, these should probably, we should all agree that anything general should be for public consumption. So one of them talks about uh, geek warning, Black Litterman model, which nobody really has to know about what that means, other than I'm proud enough that I was able to convince one investor who was on the edge by showing them that what kind of implied views on trend that they actually have to have in order to have a zero allocation. Okay. So Robert said, you know, every day there's actually an investment decision. So mm-hmm. I'm talking to an investor and they have investment decision. They have zero in trend. There's no excuse not to invest anymore because they don't have access. Right. There's mutual funds, there's managed accounts, there's all sorts of private vehicles, there's all sorts of stuff. Tomorrow you can be invested. Mm. So you can't have any excuse. It's transparent, we all have professional administrators, mark to market, there's no operational excuses. Okay, but yet you have zero. Mm. So I worked out the kind of Black Litterman thing, which some of your readers can probably fall asleep trying to read about, and say, well, what kind of views and trend do you have to have in order for your optimal allocation to be zero? Have you seen this this work, Katie? So, you so assume it's an asset class, and assume you went through an investment decision-making process, and you came out with zero as an as an optimal mm-hmm. outcome. So, what would you have to feed in for that to come out? And negative so, returns. You know, you have to have because of the diversifying nature. Did you of this, include the correlation you know, effects too? Of course. Yeah. So you either have to have one or two things have to happen in order for you to have zero as an optimal outcome. You have to assume highly negative returns. Mm-hmm. Which, okay, if you think trend following is going to consistently lose 10% a year or something like that, then you shouldn't invest, fair enough. Or you have to assume extremely high correlation to major asset classes, which none of us have displayed for any period of time in actual history, in 800 years, or anything like that. You know, we have negative correlation to equities. I think most people do. Uh, certainly, as we speak to today mm-hmm. and this month of January, I think yeah. every CTA has displayed a negative correlation to major asset classes. So let's just call that zero on the average. Mm -hmm. So it is, when I pointed this out to them, I actually got this guy to invest, because basically the decision, the implied views on this asset class is so ridiculous. Yeah. Okay, so then I follow up with another white paper called All Portfolios Need Trend. Again, we could make this available for sale, for free. Uh, okay, you probably haven't seen this one yet, where we did a, took all, uh, not all, but most available basic asset classes that people could have. 
stocks, equities, private uh, private equity, real estate, some bunch of indices from Bloomberg or somewhere. And we created uh, one million permutations of investments that people might have, not trend not included. So somebody might have I don't know, 40% real estate, 30% private equity, 30% bonds. Okay, that's one possible sure. portfolio that somebody has. Yes, a million permutations of all kinds of things uh, in the investment world. And then we said, okay, what's the optimal allocation to trend from every one of those? What right. was your optimization? We put up a histogram. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, we could do, we did all kinds of minimum variance and maximum diversification and all the geeky stuff and just average them. Is that the point here is not the geekness. The sure. point is that if you look at the histogram of the outcomes, the lowest optimal allocation to trend is something like 20%. Right. The average is something like 35. Highest is, you know, maybe higher. Uh, very few investors will actually have the discipline to do this. But zero or something low is just, there's just no excuse not to have that. Mm. And at the end of the day, you know, we have to cut past all the analysis paralysis and which one, three of us are better. Any one of us is better than, than nothing. <laughs> Did you also not write a paper, maybe it's part of this, something like the cost of not having trend following, or is that a different paper? Was that in the book? I have a paper called The, the Cost of Not Having Trend okay. Following Your Portfolio, okay. but... Maybe we're starting to write another book already. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Do you have anything to add to this, Robert? Well, I guess the message is very clear then. Sure. Uh, when you put uh, trend following and diversification together, the message is trend following CTAs are always a diversifying uh, instrument for people who have on the portfolio. I just want to make clear that we talked before about the uh, entry barrier and I uh, just want to clarify, we were, talking, we were talking about the entry barrier for starting a business mm -hmm. in, as a trend following CTA. The entry barrier for an investor is very low now because there are mutual funds that provide sure. trend following CTA exposure. So really there is no excuse for a regular investor, even, you know, middle-class families sure. to have some exposure to trend-following CTAs. Sure. I want to, um, unless, do you have anything you want to well, add? I was just going to add to what, what Alex said. Um, in our book, we talk a lot about the concept of divergent strategies. So strategies that are cutting losses, falling winners, so looking for movements. And if you really think about the philosophical reason for the solution in Alex's example, if most of the long-only portfolios that you mentioned really are convergent portfolios, mm. they're having a view about your asset allocation, mm. and they tend to be sort of thinking about finding risk premium, which is a convergent strategy. And anytime you have that philosophy, adding a strategy that has a different philosophy is going to diversify how you react to different environments. And that is why trend following matches so nicely with a lot of the more fundamental approaches out there. Mm -hmm. Because you're really trying to deal with risk in a different way, and that naturally complements these more traditional strategies. So that's an empirical example, but there's also philosophical reasons for why that's the case. Sure. Now, at the heart of trend following, of course, and we touched a little bit of, on, on this, 
is you know generation of signals, sizing of positions, exit strategies, overall risk management. Now, I wanted you maybe Roberto to kick off and and talk a little bit about different ways that you generate sort of signals apart from the coin flipping we talked about. Sort of let's give, give some examples <laughs> for the audience to understand when we use these terms and so that we're not sounding too geeky about it. What what does this really mean? Well, it really comes down to uh, looking at past history. And it is really briefed down in the, it is uh, summarized in the phrase, sell the winners, sell the losers. <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> buy the winners. I was going from uh, divergent to convergent for a while. Buy the winners and sell the losers. That's what trend followers is. Sure. Trend following is uh, the details make all the difference. You can have different look back period to define what is a winner or a loser. You have different ways of massaging your signal, of defining your momentum indicator, and different stop loss or other other types of exit strategies. Um, so that's pretty much the signal definition. It's hard to go into more detail than that without really getting into a lot of geekness. Sure, no, that's fine. Now, Katie? I would say, I mean, I always turn back and say, trend following is a heuristic. So it's just a rule. So the way that you think about defining a trend following strategy is just making sure you define the parameters of that rule. So in the simplest sense, the signal in terms of to go long and short, you could say, okay, I'll look over a month. If the average is increasing over, let's say, three months, ooh, things look good. You go long. You do that until you finally see that you start to lose in that position. So sure. really, you could go through many permutations of all of these simple heuristics, but at the base, at the basis, it's really just defining rules to diligently get in and get out of positions. Mm -hmm. So for investors, it's, it's exactly what they do already in their portfolios. How many people do you know that say, you know, I'm gonna get out when this happens, or mm -hmm. I'm gonna buy this month, and then when I buy this month, I'm gonna wait till this happens. Yeah. All we're doing is trying to be co consistent, parsimonious, and thoughtful in terms of the way that we design these heuristics, and then to put them together in a, in a way that makes sense. Sure. So really we're trying to systematize what investors are doing themselves. Sure. And I'll just add to, you know, we want to find the best statistical evidence that your particular choice of parameters works. And you have to be very careful about not overfitting, which goes back to the theme of uh, complexity that we talked about. You don't want your system to be more complex that, than it needs to. Sure. Now, earlier we teased uh, or we talked a little bit about that a lot of people think that the entry point is the, you know, most important, uh, you know, of, 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 of what we do. But but in fact, I think we all agree that that's not the case. So position sizing or management of the position during the trade and exit, how do they stack up? Well, what do you feel, if anything, might be most important? What do you think, Alex? Yeah, some of the, um, probably some of the original trend following systems that you get from textbooks are very kind of binary in nature. Right. You get, you're looking at data, you look at some past amount of data, 
possibly looking at a breakout or some technical factor. You get in and you buy 100 contracts or whatever the number is, and you stay till the trend comes out. Uh, the more modern versions of trend following are much more continuous in nature. Mm -hmm. uh, you evaluate signals every day, you adjust positions every day. For example, this month, I'm sure, in our case, in other CTAs, there's a lot of position adjustments due to risk mm -hmm. increasing or decreasing, or mostly increasing, whatever the case may be. Sure. So actually managing risk is probably more, when I was being hired, that's what Larry, Larry told me, that we're just, I mean, all we are is just risk managers. Right. You know, and you assume every day you're just handed a positions and you're trying to manage it because your risk can increase or decrease during the trade. Mm -hmm. So in order of importance, in my mind, it's exits, position management, entry is actually the least important. Sure. And if you actually look at the corollary or, or the opposite or something of my exercise of that random entry with a, with sure. a um, trailing stop, is if you actually use a, any kind of professional money ma uh, trend following entry, some kind of moving average or something like that, but then you just hold for a fixed amount of time, mm -hmm. you make very little money. Right. So in other words, the forecasting nature of a trend, in fact, one of the, maybe the third or fourth thing I did was take a trend, this is not 25 years ago, take a trend following system and delay it by a few days or five days or, <laughs> I mean, if you, you can't delay it by like five years, but if sure. you delay it by a small number of days, it makes no difference to the result. Right. It just shows you how Sure. Unimportant in terms of precision of timing is the, uh, but in terms of basics, just look at some history, take a ruler out. And if yeah. it's pointing up, trend is going up. And if it's pointing down, trend is going down. If I ask any one of my investors to guess whether we are long or short any market, unless it's been going totally sideways, nobody's going to be surprised by the direction of the position, mm. or at least shouldn't be surprised. Sure. We've talked about some of the key elements in trend following, um, and we talked a little bit about sort of parameters inside those things. But how do we, how do we figure out what's then the most robust parameters to, to use, Roberto? Why don't you? Um, well, what do the you think? approach we have had done is to, to use. Uh, what we call meta-parameters, which will determine your choice of specific parameters. You don't want to pick, let's say you have a certain set of parameters, n parameters. You don't want to pick the, the set that performed the best in a given look-back period, which could be a number of years, or in case of some people, could be the whole available data history could be several decades, because, of course, whatever performed best in the past is not going to, it almost surely is not going to be the best performer in the future. Mm -hmm. But it might provide some indication about what will, will perform better in the, in, the in the future. So you can choose a number of parameters around the best performers that you can use some correlation rule for that. So that involves another level, another hierarchy of parameters. You know, how many of the individual parameter sets are you going to pick? Uh, what is the rule that you're going to involve, that you're going to invoke to pick those parameters? And this process, uh, we call a walk forward process, this can be done every month or every week. 
And the important thing is that your final system is robust with respect to the metaparameters. So if you choose, if you choose very slightly different values or even somewhat different values of those metaparameters, you want to make sure that your system is, has a similar performance. The sharp ratio should not be different than 0.1 or 0.2 from your, the choice that you actually make at the end. I think I can add to that um, in the sense that, uh, let's just talk about this from, from a Campbell perspective, for example. We follow a pure scientific process. Um, every investment idea that we have is derived from an investment thesis. That thesis has to be validated, um, and then that thesis has to be peer-reviewed. So through that process, it's about understanding parameter stability. It's about understanding, really, if this is an investment idea that makes sense. And that is the principle that we follow through and through to the end of the process. Even when an investment thesis seems to not work, we go back and we review an investment thesis. So what you can see here is that it's not really a question about picking parameters. It's about following a systematic scientific approach to make sure that you're not just sort of trying to match the past. You're trying to have a view that you can validate least in, in many different ways. That, that's very important. Yeah. You have to have a story about what you're trying to say because otherwise it becomes data mining, sure. which you want to avoid all the traps of. Yeah. Because I think you, we, uh, we have to think about this also at a higher level. I have, uh, I go back to my class again, uh, <laughs> every fall I have people do a project on uh, many projects. One of them is to come up with a trend following system. People think, well, I asked them. I asked them that because I'm trying to get some free ideas for, from academics. That's not the case. The case is just to see the traps that, for me, to see the traps that they fall into, mm -hmm. and then to knock them down. So this past fall, they do a project and they present it. And this one kid came up and uh, they had like 20, 30 years of data, and he came up and shows me a sharp ratio of two and a half, which now <laughs> industry is unheard of. Sure. So, so how did you get that? Well, I give him a data set of 100 markets. Uh, and he said, well, I ran this trend following system on these 30 markets. Okay, well, why is it 30 markets? Oh, because the other 70 markets don't trend, he said. <laughs> right, because obviously he filtered them out after the fact. Okay, next guy comes up and he's got another sharp ratio of, you know, 1.5 or 1.8 or something. How'd you get that? Oh, I have a slow system on bonds, mm -hmm. which of course worked well for the last 20 or 30 years. How'd you do that? Well, because that's what worked. And they go on and on and on and on, and they probably pull me up on the internet and say, well, the professor is a dummy. You can't even get a sharp ratio of one, and we get a sharp ratio of two or three. So what happens is I think we all have to realize as scientists that we actually have a trivially small amount of data. Hmm. And even if you're not technically data mining, we've had a 20, 30-year period of basically one-way markets and bonds. Not really necessarily a one-way market in stocks, but certain biases, and if you look at the if you put a science hat on, I mean, this is like a trivially small amount of data than compared to what we might have done in science. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it just, it's just, you're just tempted to data mine kind of like the past and think like, well, that worked. I mean, it's true that slow systems and bonds worked sure. in the last 23 years. I can't say it would not have worked. So we do a lot of kind of like synthetic data creation and things like that to try to like avoid the traps of actual data, mm. even though we should be using actual data. Sure. This is kind of like maybe a little too 
But I mean, it's amazing how every one, of, every single one of my students gets the highest, highest sharp ratio in their piece of research than we've actually delivered in real life. Yeah. <laughs> the other point I'd like to emphasize sure. about the scientific viewpoint is that we have to incentivize people, every member of the team, to criticize strongly, vehemently, every new idea that, that comes by, you know. Everybody should have the high incentive of try to debunk any new ideas. And nobody should try to take it personally. <laughs> When you come up with a new idea, you should be ready for it to be destroyed by someone else until you have very, very strong evidence that it works. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Maybe strong evidence that it works sometimes. That's <laughs> yes. most of the time. Right. That's what I would that's say. That's all we want. <laughs> sometimes. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. And uh, you want to talk a little bit about risk control? Uh, yeah, that's we, fine. Since Alex mentioned, I think, if you look at the history of uh, trend following CTAs, I think the initial, the 1970s, 80s approach was to have risk control based on a market-by-market market, mm -hmm. uh, situation where you don't even consider the intermarket correlations. You just think, you just normalize your exposure by some measure of, the, of each market's volatility. So this evolved in more recent times. Everybody is looking at correlation. You have either a target for your value at risk or your portfolio volatility. And you're going to make your exposures to each market fluctuate according to that target. I think few people really do mean variance because for the reasons we discussed, that is a very unstable process and really the one over N approach seems to work better mm -hmm. in uh, the trend following regime. A new development, I think, is to have your risk target, and that's what we're doing now, your risk target fluctuates with time according to the conditions of the market. Mm -hmm. And you can go up or down if you think there are more trends or fewer trends. And also, depending on the correlations, typically when you have more correlations, we intermarket correlations, we're going to decrease the value at risk target. And there is also some scientific evidence for that in the way that you can optimize your portfolio according to your expectations and your variance. I want to be mindful of the time because I know we today have some constraints on, on time, but I, I want to touch on, 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 on a couple of things, maybe sort of more uh, from a 10,000 feet level. 30,000 feet. Or 30,000 feet, if, if, if you prefer 10, that. 10,000 meters. <laughs> um, now, uh, so in terms of education, uh, some investors that, that I've come across would say, well, I've already got one trend following my portfolio, so I think I'm covered, I'm good. We talked about that correlation between managers doesn't mean necessarily that the performance will be the same, but are there a few sort of simple guiding points we can share with, with our audience to say, well, maybe you need to consider you know, at least three or five trend followers in order to have some level of diversification 
among trend followers or how should investors go about this? Well, I mean, I guess there's a simple answer, right? You know, an investor should choose three, right? Because there's three on this table. But just, <laughs> <laughs> but just you know, just as a, a little sure. joke there. But um, we talk a little bit about this in the this white paper that I mentioned earlier uh, about return dispersion and counterintuitive correlation. I'd say it depends on how diversified you are. Um, the more diversified you are in the space the better your risk-adjusted Sharpe ratio is going to be or your better your risk-adjusted performance. So I think the real reason this type of question especially comes up is a lot of people think that they can maybe have a really simple exposure to trend following. They get the correlation, but they're not going to get the performance. So I tend to tell investors that more diversification doesn't hurt you. So you'll see that in any particular year. There are certain months where... They're inflection points. I mean, some of us may have more commodity exposure than others, for example, or others may be sh more short-term. And, and really, to weather difficult storms through markets, the more tools you have in your tool chest, the better off you're going to be. And each of us has our own set of, um, set of ways of doing things. I mean, some of them are similar, but really it's about the risk management decisions that we make and the type of markets and the allocations we make and how those differ, that's going to provide some diversification if you include different managers in, in a portfolio. And, and we see allocators doing that as well. I mean, some of them look for specifically to pair us up with, with other managers depending on what return profile they're trying to find. And some of them are looking for maybe a robust one-manager solution. I mean, it, it, it really depends. Sure. Well, we did this in, we have a graph in the book, right? It's. Uh number of managers on, on the x-axis and diversification or the dispersion on the y-axis and the answer is you should get you get you get comfortable if you have one manager don't have it in front of me but it's something it's something you, you might be if you pick the right one it'll be the right one but you could easily experience like 10 15 percent kind of like variability in your returns mm. it's just two it's like picking one stock right so there's evidence from stocking you know, how many stocks do you need to minimize variance whatever so once you get to like three or four, mm. or three of us, and maybe you spin out as your own CTA, Niels, that makes four. <laughs> um, then once you get past that, you're just, there becomes diversification, like Buffett would say, change the right. V to a W. Right. So the answer is not one, not even us, or probably any of the ones here. Sure. Uh, two is tight, unless you have a very specific mandate, and you're trying to plug in a very specific hole. Three or four is, tends to be, in practice, sure. the right number. Sure. And actually, I can go back, Alex, to um, a point that we brought up in, in the book um, that I think is a really good way to uh, communicate this to investors. Is that I talked about heuristics. We talked about parameters. If you think about any individual manager, what we are is a collection of heuristics that we're putting together mm. and parameter set. So the more parameters you have, the more diversified you are. Sure. At a certain point, the marginal contribution of more parameters doesn't add as much. So it's the same idea as a stock portfolio. The more stocks you add, the better your diversification. In our space, the more heuristics and the more parameters that you cover, the more likely you have a robust exposure to the asset class. Sure. Yeah, I just wanted to add that, yes, you're going to increase your diversification by picking three or four parameters in the sense that uh, even though they have correlations 0.7 to 0.8, 
you are going, you might increase the information ratio of your portfolio if they are good performers. So you need, you need to make sure that the process of choice is very effective. You need to make sure that you're picking the best uh, CTA rounds, and that, and you decide that not only by the past performance, but you have to know what the process they follow is. What you have to know the research team and make sure that they have a scientific, statistical approach, rigorous uh, mechanism to develop and improve their systems. Sure, absolutely. On this note, let's stop the conversation for now. Let's this be the beginning of a series of master classes with some of the best trend followers. Next one is for females. <laughs> in the business <laughs> and I appreciate your willingness to share your insights, your experiences and all the work that you do. The book I mentioned in the beginning is of course Trend Following with Manus Futures, The Search for Crisis Alpha, written by Katie and Alex and also I'm grateful for you Roberto to joining us today and of course you can find as a listener all the details of today's conversation on the show notes page of, the, of this episode on Top Traders Unpacked. And I hope we'll speak again soon and continue this conversation. Thank, Thank you, Neil. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.